This morning, uh, I want you to first turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, but we're only going to be there very briefly. I want to read our opening verse and then we'll uh, continue our lesson this morning. But uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse number 2, the Bible says, Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. And the reality is that our biblical definition of stewardship for this series has been God-given responsibility with accountability. Stewardship is God-given responsibility with accountability. In other words, we've been talking about the fact that every one of us, all of us, are accountable for how we manage the blessings that we have been given by God. And the question that we've been asking over the past few weeks is, are we faithful? Are we faithful with the things that God has blessed us with? And uh, in this series, we've already considered the stewardship, the idea of stewardship as a whole. We talked about in week one, our stewardship of the truth. And then week number two, we had somebody come and, and talk about uh, our continuing stewardship with truth and how we need to be out sharing the gospel, going into the highways and the hedges and going into all the world and preaching the gospel to every creature. And then we talked about uh, last week the stewardship of our tongues. Be careful, little tongue, what you say. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Be careful, little tongue, what you say. And so today, as you can see, we wanna, I want to take a few minutes to talk about the stewardship of our treasure. And all of God's people said, not really though, right? Typically, whenever a pastor says we're going to talk about, brother, it's good to see you. Well, typically, whenever a pastor talks about uh, the stewardship of our treasure, people are like, oh my. Not amen, but oh my. And you, you might even say a woman. I don't know what you say, but you typically are not saying amen when the pastor talks about stewardship of treasure, but that's what we want to do this morning. And I don't know why it is, but for some reason, people just get uptight. People get uptight when we talk from a biblical perspective about money things more than they do about any other subject. But we've shared with you the four principles of stewardship, uh, and they remind us that, number one, God owns everything. Number two, He entrusts us with everything. Number three, God expects us to manage well. And number four, God exalts us in the end. And so we have the principle of ownership, responsibility, accountability, and the principle of reward that we've talked about, and yet... When we get to the area of treasures, people get very, very quiet. I was thinking about this message and, and doing it from a different perspective, and we are certainly going to do it from a different perspective today, but typically, whenever pastors or teachers get up and they talk about the stewardship of treasure, some of you have already thought about, man, we must going to be talking about the parable of the talents. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 25. Well, that's certainly one destination. Another destination might, might be Luke chapter 12 and the story surrounding the parable of the man who was mesmerized. This man was mesmerized by the myth of more. You remember he comes to Jesus, and he wants Jesus to talk to his brother about his inheritance. He says, oh, Lord, just please tell my brother to share what he's got with me. And in fact, the man was concerned with what he could get. And so you remember the story. Jesus gives a parable, and he talks about a man who was consumed and controlled with covetousness. And he talks about this man who has barns. He doesn't have enough room in his barns to store all that he has, and so he's going to tear down his barns. He's going to build new barns. He's going to store more stuff. 
in his barns. He was consumed with what he had, what he could store, and what he could do. And, and all the while in this parable, he wasn't concerned about God or the things of God. Certainly, when we talk about the stewardship of treasure, we could go and listen to what the wisest man that ever lived said. Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, in verse number 10, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Solomon writes these words. He says, He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. Notice what Solomon says. He said, this also is vanity. Another passage we might turn to is Old Faithful, where Paul writes to young Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And in verse number 6, the Bible says that godliness with contentment is great gain. For we bought nothing into this world. It's certain that we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. But they that will be rich fall into a temptation and a snare and into many, not just singular, but many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Verse number 10, for the love of money is the root of all evil. Remember, it doesn't say money is evil. It says that the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith, pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man, verse number 11, but thou, O man of God, Flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. The implications of being labeled as someone who robs God from Malachi chapter 3. Some of you probably went there right away and thought, oh, he's going to talk about where, when, uh, where will a man rob God? And you've robbed me in tithes and offerings. Well, I got some good news for you. I may have just mentioned it, but we're not going to preach on those passages today. And the people of God said, you guys really meant it that time. Oh, thank you. Thank you for not talking about those things that you just highlighted. Today, I believe that the Lord wants us to do something a little bit different. And so if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 14. And some of you are probably already scratching your proverbial head, saying, well, hold on, I thought this is a message on the stewardship of treasure. And... Uh, I pray that the Lord will use this message today to encourage us, but we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to walk through a couple of things in Scripture, and then I'm simply going to make one observation, and then I'm going to let it sit with you. And I pray that the Lord will do exactly what He desires to do. There's a brief and interesting example that we find here in Scripture in Genesis chapter 14. In fact, it's something that takes place more than 700 years before it would become part of a Mosaic law. And as we get started, it's important to remind ourselves that from Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 11, God's Word details four major events. In Genesis 1 to Genesis chapter 11, there's a lot of things going on, but specifically four major events. We talk about creation, we talk about the fall of man, we talk about the flood, and then we also talk about the confusion that took place, uh, the events surrounding the Tower of Babel. And so then we get to Genesis chapter 12. In fact, if you're at Genesis 14 in my Bible, it's right across the page on the other side. In Genesis chapter 12, God's Word actually reveals to us one of the most important chapters in all of Scripture because God is setting up a number of things here in Genesis chapter 12 that would continue to be revealed throughout the whole of Scripture. And so look over with me at verse number 1 of Genesis chapter 12 briefly. And the Bible says this, beginning in verse number 1, it says, Now the Lord 
had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. He goes on and says, And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. And so look what takes place in verse number 4. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him. So God said something and Abram says, Okay, I'm going to trust you, God, that what you just said you're going to do. And so guess what? I'm going to depart and do what you said. Now, guess what? He was still a man of flesh because God didn't talk to him about taking his family or anything else with him. He just said, Get into a land that I'm going to show you. But notice what Abram does. So Abram departed as the Lord spoken unto him, and Lot went with him the Bible says. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed out of Haran. And Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered and the souls that they had gotten in Haran. And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan. And into the land of Canaan they came. Verse 6, And Abram passed through the land unto a place of Sikkim and unto the plain of Moreh. And the Canaanite, and the Canaanite was in the land. Verse number 7, And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. So he gets there and God says, Guess what? Unto you and your seed I'm going to give this land. And there, notice what Abram does. He builds an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. And he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent having Bethel on the west and Hai on the, on the east, and there he built an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed, still going toward the south. Now as we get started, as you look at Genesis chapter 12, in those first nine verses, you'll see that six times you see the name and the word Lord in capital letters. And so the, in the original Hebrew text, it's important for you and I to understand that that word specifically is speaking of Jehovah the self-existent, the eternal God, the creator of the universe. And so this is what Abram saw when he looked at God. He saw the self-existent creator, the supreme God of the universe. And so when God said something, in Abram's mind, it settled it. Amen? When God says something to you, the question is, does that settle it? Or do you need confirmation from the world? Do you need confirmation from your husband? Or do you need confirmation from your wife or your children or your aunts or your uncles or grandpa or grandma? No. When God says it, that settles it. Hold on to this principle. In the New Testament, I was studying in the New Testament, confirms in Hebrews chapter 11, basically what we just saw in Genesis chapter 12, in Hebrews 11, in verse number 8 and following, the Bible says this, By faith Abram, when he was called to go out into a place which he should have to receive for an inheritance, he obeyed and he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country. Do you know that you and I are nothing more than pilgrims, strangers in a foreign land? You think this is your home, but this is not your home. I'm moving on. I'm ready to step on up to a higher place. I'm tired of this world. I'm ready to see a new world. 
a new heaven and a new earth where the former things are passed away and all things will become new. You think, well, this is my home. Don't drive your stakes in too deep. Uh, as Pastor Skinner used to say, this train's moving on. The Bible says in verse number 9, he by faith sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Oh, my friends, God's name was being made known through the faithfulness of one faithful man. But I digress because some of you know your Bible and you know that in Genesis chapter 12, immediately after God tells Abram, hey, look, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to bless them that bless you. I'm going to curse them that curse you and, and on and on. We know that there was a little famine in the land. And we know that Abram took his wife and they went to Egypt. And when they got to, as they're getting to Egypt, Abram has a plan. And what does he tell his wife? He says, now look, when we get over here in Egypt, you're not my wife. You're, you, you, you go, you're my sister. And so don't let anybody know you're my wife. So he has faith, but obviously he also does something that I think we're a little guilty of too. We start trying to handle things on our own. Instead of taking God at His word, hold on, God just said, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. And those that bless you, I'm going to bless them. And those that curse you, I'm going to curse them. Oh, but you're my sister now. Don't tell anybody. Let's work things out my way. And you know, to, you know how that works out. Well, the reality is they come out of Egypt. Look over in chapter 13. They come out of Egypt. In the first four verses, look, it tells us that Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had and lot with him in the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle and silver and in gold. And he went on his journeys from the south even to Bethel under the place where his tent had been at the beginning. So he goes back to where he was. And it says, between Bethel and Hai, in verse number four, unto the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there... Abram says, I guess I better call on the name of the Lord. I've done made a mess of things already. In one, not even a whole chapter of Scripture, in fact, in about ten verses, I've made a mess of things. And so guess what? I'm going to go back. I think sometimes that's what we need to do. We need to go back. You need to go back to the beginning where you first fell in love with Jesus. You need to go back to the beginning where your life was changed, where my life was changed. We need to go back, back, back to the point where we trusted God, where we believed God, where we walked with God, where we talked with God, where we did great things, not because we were great, but because He was great. Ooh, I might get worked up today. And if you've ever read the passage in Genesis chapter 13, you know that as soon as Abram goes back to the beginning, he starts praying, and then the very next thing we see is there is a, a dispute. A dispute between his herdsmen and the herdsmen of his nephew. He should have left his nephew where he found him. I'm just going to say that. You say, how, how dare you? I, sometimes the nephew just needs to be left where he is. But anyway, there's a dispute. And if you look down, look at verse number 8 and 9. 
In verse number 8 and 9, it says, Abram, the, the much older Abram, says to Lot, he says, uh, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. In other words, why are we fighting? We're brothers. You're my brother's son, but we are brothers. Quit fighting. And look at verse number 9. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. In other words, get away from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I'm going to go to the right. If you depart and go to the right hand, then I will go to the left. And, and you know the rest of the story. Lot, in verse number 10, the Bible says that Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. So the younger Lot says, hmm. He starts doing, he starts doing like little Jeremiah does with his hands. I, I, he starts doing this. He says, hmm. He says, I see well-watered land. I think I'm going to go this way. And if you keep reading in Scripture, in verse number 11, the Bible says that Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east. And they separated themselves one from another. Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan. Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain. And notice, he pitches his tent towards, and you know this, towards Sodom. And then the very next verse says, But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners. Before the Lord, the self-existent creator of the universe, and the Bible says exceedingly. So this sets up for us what I think the Lord wants us to see. I want you to remember that Abram is a wealthy man. He's got plenty of cattle. He's got plenty of herds. He's got plenty of gold. He's got plenty of silver. He doesn't need your silver. He doesn't need my silver. He doesn't need his nephew's silver. He's got all that he could ever want, all that he could ever imagine. Oh, he's blessed beyond measure. And Lot as well. Look with me in Genesis chapter 14. I want us to notice the story here and then see one line of this scripture and then we'll, and then we'll be done. In Genesis chapter 14, look at verse number 1 through 4. And some of these names are very confusing and difficult to pronounce. But the Bible says, And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasar, uh, Kedor Laomer, king of Elam, entitled the king of nations, that these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Beersha, king of Gomorrah, and Sinab, the king of Adma, and Shemaber, he's the king of Zeboim, and then the king of Bela, which is Zoar. And all these were joined in the vale of Siddim, which is the salt sea. And notice verse 4, it says, Twelve years they served Kedor Laomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. And so what you notice in verse number 1, you notice the names of four kings. That's, let's just call them the Eastern Coalition, if you please, of kings. And then in verse number 2, you see the name of five kings. Now I'm going to introduce you to ten kings today. That's nine. Just hold on, we'll get to the other one here in a second. But the four kings in the Eastern Coalition obviously had, uh, had gone to battle with those in verse number 2 and 1. And you see, during that time, kings would attack one another. And after winning a battle, they would basically take whatever they wanted. They would take the plunder. They would take the spoils of war, if you please. And it didn't matter whether it was animals, people, uh, material possessions, whatever it was, they would take it. And verse 4 reminds me, or teaches me, that the Western coalition had lost. Because it says that they had served Kedor, uh, Kedor Laomer for 12 years. 
But in year number 13, they said, no, no, enough is enough. Enough is enough. Yes, we lost and we've served for 12 long years. Enough is enough. But if you keep reading in chapter 14, within a year's time, the Bible tells me that the Eastern Coalition, if you please, decides to put down this revolt. They say, no, 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 no. So what they do is they start attacking, and quite frankly, they start conquering everyone in their path. And if you notice verses 5 through 7, you see that they, they go through a group of people called the Rephaims. This is a tribe of so-called giants. They go through an aboriginal tribe known as the Zuzims. They go through the Aims, which are a Moabitish tribe. They go through the cave dwellers, the Horites. And then you know the names of the Amalekites and the Amorites. And so they're literally like going boom, 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 taking one right after another. And then we look at verse number 8. And the Bible says there went out a king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Admon and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela. And they joined the battle with them. So, so the western kings say, no, you're not going to do this. We're going to go back out and we're going to go to war. Okay, guys, you just finished serving 12 years. You're going to go to war again. That's exactly what they do. And notice what happens in verse number 10 and following. The Bible says, And the veil of Siddim was full of slime pits. And the king of Sodom, kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell there. And they that remained fled to the mountain. And they, that they there is the Eastern Coalition, took all the goods, i.e. all the property. That's what it's talking about. Took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals, all their food, and they went their way. And notice what they also take in verse number 12. And they took Lot, Abraham's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods, all of his property. Remember I told you he was wealthy too. They took all of his property and they departed. But keep reading, verse number 13. And there came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, the brother of Aner, and these were confederate with him. Now what you need to understand that where it says, and these were confederate with him, essentially what's taking place is it seems that these three brothers and, and Abram had entered into some type of an agreement, basically an agreement that says, hey, Tom, you, Chuck, and I are in agreement. I got your back. Chuck, you got Tom's back. Tom's got my back, and Tom's got your back. We all got one another's back, and so they're in confederate with one another. Notice the Bible says in verse 14, and when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants born in his own house, 318, and pursued them. The Eastern Coalition as Ernie was reading this past week, unto Dan. <laughs> and I, I'm agreeing with you, Ernie. I don't think those guys actually knew those, uh, those guys. We were having another discussion. In verse 15, the Bible says, And he divided himself unto them, he and his servants by night, and smote them and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. Verse 16, watch it. And he brought back, what's Abram do? He brought back all the goods, the property, and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods, his property, and the women and also the people. So all of the people, all of the women, all of the property has been recovered by Abram and this small band of courageous 
uh, uh, soldiers that go and they separate themselves into little militia groups and they attack these various kings who have been making a mockery of the Western coalition by night and they recover everything. What an amazing story. By the way, this is the only account that we have in Scripture that we find Abraham involved in war. And he doesn't do it for selfish reasons. He does it, as John Wesley once, suggest, once suggested, it was not of greed of ambition, but it was based purely on the principle of charity, the idea of love and action. He had heard that his nephew had been taken. He had heard that all the families had been taken. All the property had been taken. All of the goods had been taken. And so out of a sense of love, out of a sense of duty, he rises up a small militia and he goes out to fight battles with kings who have destroyed other kings. What an amazing story. It's truly one of the most understated passages of all of Scripture. Such a huge victory by such a small group of courageous people. Again, again solidifying God's name in the promised land. Because here comes Abram, and he's doing it in the promised land. After striking and beating the Eastern Coalition, verse 16, if you look at it again, it indicates, because he brought back all the goods, it indicates to you and I that now Abram is in possession of all the goods and all the property, i.e. all the spoils of war. So what does he do? Look at verse 17. The Bible says, And the king of Sodom, his name, remember, is Berah, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, Abram, after his return from the slaughter of Kedor Laomer, and of the kings that were with him, the other eastern coalition kings, if you please, at the valley of Shaveh, which is the king's dale. In verse 18, we're introduced to this other king, but he's a king and a priest like none other. He's a mysterious person, uh, we, we hear about him a thousand years later in Psalm 110 and, and many years later after that in the book of Hebrews, it's a good old Melchizedek, Melchizedek. And so we see in verse number 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine and he was the priest of the most high God. So he's both a king and he's a priest. And then in verse number 19, it says, And he, Melchizedek, blessed him, Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hands. So in front of Berah, this wicked king, it's kind of amazing, in front of the wicked king, Melchizedek comes out and he says, You know what? It's time to have a worship service. It's time to praise God. I'm going to bless Abram because he is a man who is following the Most High God. And we're also going to praise the Most High God, the one who actually delivered Abram and this victory. So we see this worship service take place. But what I really want you to notice is the last part of verse 20. It's what does Abram do? It's not what Melchizedek does, but what does Abram do? It says, and he gave him tithes of all. Hold on a second. He takes 10% of the spoils, is what you're saying? He takes 10% of all the goods, all the property, 
and he gives it to Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God. Right there. You see it? As a steward of what he had been blessed with more than 700 years before it would become part of the Mosaic Law, Abram gives a tithe back to God. He didn't need a pastor. He didn't need a church. He didn't need anybody to tell him to give back to God. He actually realized that the only reason he was successful was because it was of the same God, the same Lord, the same creator of the universe that said, guess what? I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make of you a name and it's going to be a blessing to all the nations and those who bless you will be blessed and those who curse you will be cursed. And Abram says, you know what? He's worthy. I'm giving an offering back to God. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse number 9 and 10. The Bible says, honor the Lord. There it is, honor the Lord with thy substance and with thy first fruits of all thine increase. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. In verse 21, go back to chapter 14 and verse 21, Scripture immediately tells us what the wicked king does. The wicked king Bera, he basically looks at Abram, the guy who just saved him, and says, hey, give me all the persons and take the goods to thyself. Almost like, give me the people and you just take what you want and get away. How rude. Bro, you just were saved by this little band of militia and you're going to put out some kind of order like you're in charge? You're no longer really in charge. And do you not see Melchizedek is having a worship service? Do you not see that Abram is worshiping God through giving a tithe back to God? And the very next thing you want to say is, give me the people and you take the goods and get out of here. But that's what the world says. His response is consistent with what we see in the world today. Give me what I want and you go on your way. But in verse 22, Abraham, he responds. Look at, look at what his response. He says, he, he looks back to the king and he says, I have lift up my hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven. He's calling him Lord. You remember Melchizedek doesn't even reference him as Lord, but Abram takes it a step further and he says, he is the self-existent, the creator of the universe. I've lift up my hands to him. And then in verse 23 In 24, he finishes by telling the king of Sodom, he says, I will not take a thread even to a shoe latchet and that I will not take anything that is thine lest thou should say that I have made Abram rich. Save only that which the young men have eaten and the portion of the men which went with me, Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre, let them take their portion. The guys that I'm in confederate with, the guys that have my back, that knew that I was going on this dangerous mission, they agreed to go with me because I was out to save my nephew Lot hey, you give them what they deserve, but I don't want a stinking thing from you, king of Sodom, because I don't worship you. I worship the God of this universe. Folks, Abraham wasn't concerned with what he could get from the battles or the wicked king for that matter. Abram's desire was to do right. Abram's desire was to worship God by recognizing God's goodness, by recognizing God's provision. You see, Abram was a man of courageous faith and he took God at His word. He believed that 
when God, yes, he had a slight falter there when he goes to Egypt, but he believed that God was the one who said he would make of him a great nation. And so he trusted God. He said, listen, I'm going out here on a mission of mercy, but I believe that God's going to be with me. I believe that he's going to go with me. I believe that he's going to protect me. I believe that he's going to bring me through the battle. And I believe that he's going to do exactly what he said. And folks, you and I can believe God will do the same in our life. I'm sealed under the day of redemption. I'm headed for heaven and I can't help it. Man, I love that. That was the first day in soteriology class. Professor walked in and he said, I know some of you guys want to get off on predestination and foreknowledge and everything else. He said, so let me just put it to you real succinctly. And we had chalkboards, by the way. Man, they need some whiteboards out there, don't they? They're little magic erasers or whatever. And he writes on there, I'm headed for heaven, and I can't help it. And he said, if you don't remember another thing in this entire semester, remember that. You have been sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise unto the day of redemption. If you're a blood-bought child of God, you don't need to fear what's going on, because I'm moving on. I told my wife the other day, I reminded her of a song, I told her, and and it's a southern gospel song, so you may love southern gospel, or you may be like Gordon and hate it, but anyway, Gordon, you'll remember this song. Years ago, there was a group used to come to Battlefield all the time. One of their members is long gone on into glory. They're not singing together anymore, but they used to sing this song, I'm going to get carried away when I get carried away. I got news for y'all. I'm going to get carried away when they carry me away. I don't care where y'all put me. You can put me in the ground in a mausoleum, in a jar, whatever you're going to do. I don't know, girl. Just kiss the jar every day. All right? She thinks I'm being funny. I am being funny. Isn't God good? He's good all the time. Folks, we can trust God at His word. When we talk about the stewardship of treasure, there's no need for you to curl your little toes up. There's no need for you to put your hand on your back pocket or on your purse like I'm coming after you because I really don't want what you got in your purse or in your pocket. God wants your heart. And when God has a hold of your heart, what's in your purse or what's in your pocket or what's, what other resources you think you have, you'll be understanding that you don't own them. You'll be reminded. When God gets a hold of your heart, you're going to be reminded. We'll be reminded. You don't own a thing. You're just a steward. And the question is, are you faithful or are you unfaithful? You see, God promised to provide for us eternally. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's a promise, and I'm pretty sure if you're a blood-bought child of God, you're pretty thankful for that promise. God's also promised to provide for us spiritually. Right? In 1 Peter 2, 2, the Bible says, as newborn babes desiring this, to desire the sincere milk of the word 
that you may grow thereby. He'll provide for you spiritually. By the way, we all don't grow at the same rate of speed. So quit pointing a finger to one another and saying, well, if you would do right, if you would do right, just worry about doing right yourself. We got a lot of people who like to point a finger. Just remember, I was talking about Wednesday night. When you point a finger somewhere, you got three of them coming back at you. God's promised to provide physically. Well, Pastor, I'd give. Well, you know, I got to. You, you tell us all the time you want us to wear clothes, and you tell us all the time that you want us to come up and worship, and you tell us all the time. Well, that's why the Bible says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. You don't have to take thought for tomorrow. Tomorrow will take thought of itself. Wasn't it, wasn't it Frank Sinatra used to sing all the years ago? Let's forget about tomorrow. Let's forget about tomorrow. Let's forget about tomorrow. For tomorrow never comes. See, we're always worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow instead of living for Christ today. This is only one simple example. But I see the key to Abraham's stewardship is based on the depth of his relationship. Take that. The key to his stewardship was based on the depth of his relationship. He believed God. He trusted God. Therefore, when he was blessed, he brought everybody back alive. Can you imagine? Got everybody back out alive. I mean, you want to make a superhero movie, how about start looking for some real superheroes? And God uses him, and everybody comes out alive. And what's the first thing he does? He gives a tithe 700 years before it's codified in the Mosaic Law. Oh, my gracious friends, don't miss it. You say, well, Abraham's stewardship's based on the depth of his relationship. Well, how do you prove that? Well, look at Genesis chapter 12. Look at Genesis chapter 12 very quick because you'll see in verse number 7, he builds an altar. In verse number 8, he builds another altar and then he calls upon the name of the Lord. If you look in Genesis chapter 13, after he has a little, uh, little bit of failure in his journey of faith, the Bible says he goes back to the original altar and notice in verse 4, it says that he calls upon the name of the Lord. And then a few verses later, God reconfirms his promise to Abram. And then in Genesis 13, verse number 17, he says, Arise and walk through the land and the length of it and the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. And then in verse 18, the Bible tells us that Abram immediately removed his tent, came and dwelt in the land or the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron. And notice what he does again. He builds another altar to the Lord. This guy had a relationship with the Lord. He was building altars. He was calling upon the name of the Lord. You know the Bible says that if you lack wisdom, call on God. I lack wisdom every day. I'm not ashamed to ask God for wisdom. The moment you get ashamed to ask God for wisdom is the moment you stop asking God for wisdom. And the moment you stop acting God, asking God for wisdom is the moment you start acting like really something other than God wants you to be. Abram's steward stewardship was simply an extension of his relationship with the Lord. He realized that managing and giving back a portion was another way that he could worship God. And since Melchizedek had opened up a worship service, the very natural thing for Abram to do was to offer that tithe back to God. 
I put in my notes, whether it's a tithe, an offering, missions giving, or how we use the other resources we've been blessed with, the question is whether or not biblically we are faithful or whether we are being unfaithful. And it all boils down to the question, do we trust God or do we not trust God? You see in verse 22, look at it. Abram made his level of trust very clear when he responds to the wicked king by saying, I have lift up my hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth. Oh, my friends, remember God's the initiator. He's the owner. He's the one who entrusts us with everything. We're simply his stewards. Moreover, it is required, moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. I simply ask you as we close, how faithful, how faithful have you been with the things God has blessed you with? You say, man, I do pretty good. Man, haven't been real faithful this year. It's been a tough year. Do you know that we can trust God in the valleys as well as trusting him on the mountaintops? He'll be faithful to you. His faithfulness is not in question. The question is whether we have been faithful. I pray that if you don't know Christ, that today you've heard the evidence that he's faithful. He's faithful to forgive you of all your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. The Bible did say, as I shared a moment ago, it does say that God loved the world so much that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Whether you're here today, whether you're watching and worshiping online, and you, this is the first attempt you're making to try and make a spirit, spiritual connection with God, I want you to know that God loves you. He died to save you. Trust Him today. Trust Him today. If you're here today and, and you're a believer, we've been talking about stewardship. Your responsibility and my responsibility to be good managers of all the things that God has blessed us with. I want you to know that you can trust God. He'll provide for you. Listen, listen. He does require that we work. He didn't say you're going to get something for nothing. There, are the, there is the principle of actually get a job and you can eat in God's Word. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't help our brothers and sisters out because it also says let him that stole steal no more, but let him work with the, his hands the thing that is good so that he has to give to those that need so we can help other people out. There's all kind of principles in God's Word if we'll just get in there and search them out. He loves you. And as crazy as it may have seemed, He loves me. And I have learned over my lifetime to trust Him, especially in this area with the stewardship of my treasure, understanding that it's not my treasure at all. It's His. Lord, we thank You. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the opportunity we've had to meet together today. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity that you give us each day to be faithful. God, may the thoughts and the intents of our hearts please you. Lord, we know that this world is spiraling out of control, which is why now more than ever we need to cling to the old rugged cross. Oh, Lord, what a wonderful Savior. You are to those who have placed their faith and trust in you. And I pray that again, if there's somebody that doesn't know Christ as their Savior, that today 
today that they would by faith take that step that they would call out upon the name of the Lord for the forgiveness of their sin. For those that are believers, God, I pray that we would take up the opportunity we have to become better stewards. There may be some people here that say, man, I'm doing a great job. Well, can you do a little better? I think we can all do better. So, Lord, I pray that we'll do just that. That we'll rely on Your strength. We'll rely on Your wisdom. We'll rely on Your goodness. And God, that You'll give us the wherewithal to become the very best managers of all that You've blessed us with. Lord, as we sing this song of invitation, I pray that it is sweet to Your ears. God, as we lift up our hearts in praise, God, I pray that You would be with us and that You would strengthen us for the day and the season in which we live. And God, that You would continue to use this church to reach out with the truth, to tell somebody about Jesus, to tell somebody about His love while we have the opportunity. Certainly that we would use our resources in a way that accomplishes Your will, Your mission, here locally and all around the world. Lord, we'll be careful to give you the praise and the honor and the glory for it all. And we pray it in the precious name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like more information about our ministry, check out our website at battlefieldbaptist.org or follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We'll see you next time.